Hello and welcome. My name is Karen O'Connor and you're listening to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. And welcome. Today I'm here with Dee Tozer. Welcome, Dee. And thank you so much for being on, by the way. Oh, thank you so much, Karen. I'm honoured. I've been reading your website and what you do is incredible. It comes at relationship counselling, couples therapy, whatever you want to call it, from a completely different angle to what I, from what I can see. Anyway, talk to me about what it is you do, who you work with and why you're so passionate about doing things the way you do because we've just been talking and I found it okay. really intriguing what you do. <laughs> what I do in a, a nutshell is crunch down in the endurance tolerance time frame when couples are out of sorts with each other for whatever reason and particularly if they're in a serious crisis and they're into a couples therapy in the traditional sense it drags on and on. And if there's crisis, as I learned over the years, they cannot tolerate or endure the ongoing drag on for a year or two. So I can worked out, tried, tested and worked out the perfect time frame is 90 days, believe it or not. And I do a 90-day program that stabilises them because I do nowadays pretty well everybody I deal with is in high crisis due to either an infidelity or high volatility that they just can't tolerate anymore. So we need to stabilise and soothe, settle quickly to be able to rescue, then repair and rebuild, make that relationship over. I do relationship makeovers. And 90, I've got another 30 days on the end if we need it. I hardly ever have to use it. And the reason I went there was because I started working 30 years ago with affluent people. I'm in an affluent area where people were travelling. The guy was more travelling back in that era Kids were high achievers, family pressures, no, no attention to their relationship. And I was doing phone calls with somebody travelling in a hotel at night in another country. I would be doing a landline phone call, dead against, totally against all conventional couples therapy. So I stayed. I was a psychologist for 30-something years, but this is coaching. So what I realised, I'm actually forward-pacing people to do it well, to make sure they have a sustainable relationship that thrives. And to do that, we have to do individual and joint sessions, which goes against traditional therapy. And I'm, I'm quite the unconventional, if that's the answer. Is that <laughs> enough answer for that? I've got more. I can go on and on. <laughs> I think that's great because there's a few things that you said there that go against my understanding of couples therapy and relationship therapy and, and I don't know that much about it I've got to be perfectly honest but the idea of having a solo session with a counsellor is great because you can just offload without worrying about what your partner's gonna think or whether you're upsetting them or you know their reaction to whatever's yes. going on you just offload this is where I'm at and that's what's needed as well isn't it yeah, because it doesn't trigger off or activate any more grudges or resentment. So when people come in and they are only there together, they either hurt each other or hurt one hurts the other or they guard and crush it back down. They go outside feeling more grudges than they have when they came in. So that was many years ago. 
I, by accident really, and I did it because someone was travelling and I needed to rescue and we had so much on the line. See, we've got the family on the line. We've got, I, I work mainly with people in businesses where they've got a load on the line there, even reputations on the line. And then, of course, the asset base they've worked so hard for, all on the line. And we need to deal with it as fast as possible in the shortest time frame for endurance and tolerance and show people how, A, to let go of the bitterness and whatever else has arisen because it's going to be there. We're human. We've got all of that in us. That's the way we're built. And then also how to return the, the what I call chain reaction around so it becomes a good, great chain reaction, not the negative one we get in. And so that's what I do. And in 90 days, I do extend occasionally to 120 days if I have to, no extra charge. But I don't charge sessionally based. It's a package fee. And that means people commit for 90 days. They don't think, oh, I'll go next week. Oh, now I'm not going. No, I didn't like what you said. You said that about me and that really wasn't true. And the therapist, well, so Sue is looking after you. She's biased. I'm not going. See, so I got rid of all that. It's eliminated every hiccup. Hmm. Yeah, because it's not an option to go or not. You're not just paying week by week. It's this is a fit. It's a course. It's a program, basically. It's not yeah. a development program it's that a program. you signed up for and yeah. you attend. So I'm just thinking about how I'd feel if I was in there and and the questions I'd have, because I think that's one of the important things going into this kind of session would be more about me as an individual first and foremost, rather than us as a couple. And I think that would actually be crucial because one of the things I certainly felt mm. after a long time in the relationship was that I didn't exist as an individual anymore. And I think that's how a lot of yes. people, women maybe, I don't know, women or men, do men feel like that or is it just a, a woman thing? Yes. No, they both do. And interesting this is how long around I've been doing this. In 1993, early days for me, three years in, I came up with the idea, uh, concept of individual operating systems and couples operating systems. So iOS and COS, not iOS. And when Apple iPhones came out and all of that with iOS, I laughed. I thought it was hysterical because I think I've been doing it for about eight to ten years, talking to a couple, showing them that how they're, they haven't been able to migrate across to a couple's operating system that's going to be sustainable for a thriving relationship. They've stayed in their individual operating system, their iOS, and we have to nurture that. We all have to have it. But then learning how to have a couple's operating system is a learnt skill. It's not something we automatically know how to do unless we've had a fabulous family experience and we watch that in life. Not many do. <laughs> no. So I think for, if I look at it my perspective, from my perspective, I didn't have an iOS that was sustainable because my main focus was the couple's operating system. So it was like I'd moved away from my iOS and towards a COS. And I, rightly or wrongly, <laughs> I didn't feel like my husband had much of a COS. He was all iOS. And I think that yeah. I'm not alone. That's right. No, you're not alone. That's very common. And the thing is, women more go to the COS, but couples operate existing, but then they don't feel heard because mm. they give up their their individual voice. And if it comes out, if it comes out 
when they're really pushed to frustration. And then the fellas, the guys who don't have a strong couples operating system, nor necessarily an interest in it, because they don't see it as anything more than criticism of them. See, oh. they see that as a, a put down. So they like to stay in their IO, their individual operating system, because it's safe, it's secure, and it's full of self-belief, full of self-belief. That is guys more, where women don't have so much self-belief and they are more likely to do the nurturing because couples operating system is more of a nurturing base. So we'll naturally go there, particularly once children come along, but we're not aligning on it until someone shows you how to. And that I learned that very early on the early 1990s. I was a teacher first for 15 years and then I went back to uni and I did a degree in psychology in brain neurosciences and that came out of me watching kids and coaching and doing parent-teacher nights, not with academic work back in the day of 1969, 70, 71. No, I was getting parents to come in for a private meeting with me to find out what was going on in their relationship because the kids were struggling so much at school and I would go in and find, I wouldn't ask them to come in because it was about their relationship. I would say, come in, have a talk. And it came out every time. They would say, we're splitting up or we're not living together anymore. He's had an affair, she's having a Whatever the child was representing and reflecting that in their behaviour at school, a disruptive family life. And I would go in without any training as a young teacher and go, how about we look at that? How weird is that? It's really I think I had a calling. I think you did. And, and one thing I think is interesting <laughs> is that you track everything too, don't you? It's not like what I you do, do land for, lands for me as results-oriented. You want to know the result and you want to know the outcome. Yeah, because what would I be there for if I'm not giving people the happiness they deserve and shaping them up, it's not fulfilling for me, and that's selfish. But so when I first started out as a psychologist with my psych degree in 1990, finished the three-year psych degree, we traditionally get sent, all our clients were t t depression, anxiety, stress, trauma, blah, 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 and I went on and trained and all that. Regularly, somebody would come in and I would hear that behind it was a relationship issue at home of the full range, whatever they were, and I would then... So do you think your husband or your wife might come in and have a chat with me? It just seemed to be I was results-orientated, solution-focused. I go, maybe I could understand that better and maybe we could help, and that's what happened. So then I started to think, this isn't really something I know that much about training-wise, so I should record everybody. So I see who came in when I was so detailed. It was a spreadsheet like you haven't seen of detail. And I had what, how many times they came, what I covered. So I learned, don't cover that, that doesn't work. That set something off. Then I worked out grudges and I came to this whole terminology of grudge sludge, which is like emotional quicksand. Then I worked out quickly how to move that. And I was repairing couples when someone came into me for an individual emotional issues. Now I didn't do it with everybody. Some people were definitely needing psychological therapy and treatment for depression and anxiety and all of that, of course. But there were enough couples that by 1993 I'd stopped all of the other work and I was just letting every GP and any other place I could hand brochures out or do whatever. I printed brochures for my practice way before anybody was even doing it and I went around to everything I could think of to show I went to 
<laughs> would you believe <laughs> mothers and babies health centers even oh, yeah. because there was so much friction when babies were born and uh, I just sudden and I just became all couples it's weird I didn't have a conscious thought of it I probably did but not like that's the be all and end all but that's what happened <laughs> and so that's how I know how many that's how I know what worked it, it's really interesting because if I think about, oh, there's a couple of ways I want to go here. Uh, there's so many questions I've got. But it's like somebody who's been in a marriage for several decades, you get into habits, don't you? And it becomes your reality. Yes. That's the way I am. That's yes. the way they are. That's the way the situation is. How do you actually start yes. to work and support people and seem that's just, that's not actually the truth. That's <laughs> just the way it is right now. How do you do that? Yeah, well, okay. I don't approach it by that's not the truth. I say what impact is that having on your spouse and then what is it having on you? Let's unravel, unpack the impact. And then I say, so how would it feel if that was said instead? So I never talk about change. So I don't use the word change. Humans do not like the word change. Little baby two-year-olds don't like the word change. No. So I talk, adapt and align. If I have to go somewhere near change, I use the word modify because we can all see ourselves doing that. Then I say, if you, everything I do, I created a diamond back in the day, 1989, called the Goodwill Diamond of Everlasting Love. I called it a corny name. Anyway, it's still there today. It's part of everything I do. I have a playbook everybody gets. It's the first, just about the first page in the playbook because goodwill is really the piece that suffers when people are together a long time. They get in a routine and a rhythm, but they don't necessarily feel like they matter enough. And it's goodwill that got damaged along the way and kept on getting a bruise and a battering verbally or just distance, become dissociated or routine habits. And we just don't get heard. We don't feel like we matter. But it's usually both sides. It's not usually one. Whenever I have a couple that where one partner says, oh, I don't get heard or whatever, and I can ask the other spouse and that one will say, no, I don't either. We've stopped hearing each other. We've gotten into like, trudge along together and if we've got enough exciting things in life that we do that we challenge and whatever that keep us bonded and connected we can traverse that or navigate that better and stay relatively close but if we don't know how to stay in close togetherness close connectedness if we don't know how most don't then we drift and that's what happens and I have I had a lady texting me yesterday from Mexico she's 76 her husband's 78, they've had a big family fallout. And she was on text. She said, can I have a chat with you without you charging me because he won't let me pay for anything? Yeah, sure. Okay, so we did it. We did 20 minutes texting and I was able to help her work out her next step. Okay, without, and, and it's not about long-term anything, it was a 20-minute texting because she couldn't speak because he would hear her. So she's doing this. He's a 78-year-old man who's quite stuck in his ways now so she probably is I don't even know them but I gave her step one and that's what she needed she didn't have an open doorway and I said to her there's step one go and have a think about in two years is it going to matter that you are refusing to have anything to do with his family 
and it all came from a nothing thing, actually, if you look at it, scale of things. And she went, oh, yeah, it is. I said, when's it going to matter most? She said, oh, we've all, I've got a granddaughter getting married and everyone's going to be at that wedding. I said, when's that going to be? She said, six weeks. I said, all right, let's aim for that then. But I won't be helping her. I've pointed her to people who can help her through that because it's not what I do. And she went, she was so grateful because I just don't know. And it takes up, not always does it take up that one person controls, but sometimes it does, and in her case it did. Sometimes it just takes up that we just pull back, we're detached and disconnected. Do you find that More when detached. something happens like infidelity or something like that, is that an excuse to prompt a separation or a change in behaviour or to prompt a reaction of some kind? What are the causes of infidelity? Yes, last year I wrote my controversial book called Affair Repair. It was published, it's on Amazon, last September. And I, not for everybody, but the majority and all those I deal with where they want to look at a repair, guess what it is? A cry for help, I believe. It is a cry for the other partner to look at me and notice me and yeah so another person out there whether it's online texting in the gym at work whatever pays attention and people feel worthwhile again so easy we don't like it we think why don't you have better morals than that it's not an excuse you can't say it was a mistake all of that however it's very easy to not even notice you're sliding into a close friendship with somebody who's paying attention to you. And at work in particular, there's likely to be someone else there who's in a similar distant, disconnected relationship at home where they're not heard, where there's not, or in a high volatile one. So they start sharing their story and then they find common ground and they get connected. It's They matter. They feel like they matter. We need to matter. That's what it's all about. We must feel close enough to matter and there's a way to do that and that's what I teach over 30, 90 days. So what is the first step, <laughs> going back to that lady in Mexico, it, what is the first step? What do you need to do? If somebody came to you and said, just found out my wife's been unfaithful to me and the marriage has been going downhill for a while and blah, blah, blah. What are the first steps that need to happen there? I say what I say. So I go with events. So this one happened to be a wedding, grandchild's wedding, but I would typically go with. And so on a Christmas day coming up, if it even could be February and the next Christmas day is not till December, and I'll say, what's going to be happening on Christmas day? Is it worth all of this or is it worth having a look at fixing it? And they go, and then other people have a holiday. I have a couple currently, and I can't believe it that they are because they're a very high volatile couple. They're going to Italy and Mediterranean next week for eight weeks. And three months ago, you couldn't even imagine they would be able to get on that trip together. They couldn't have. They, if they did, one was coming home, I think, or going somewhere else. I was, But not now. And I said to them right at the beginning of it when they were deciding whether to even immerse in this with me because it's an immersion over 90 days, I said, what's the biggest goal? So they were both quickly and easily able to say, we have got a trip booked. I said, how big a trip? So it's about looking forward to whatever the goal is and it doesn't have to be that. It can be a child's christening, 
a child's uh, graduation from uni? Who's going? And are you going to actually, or what about a funeral? I had a couple go where a niece, I think about eight-year-old, who had a very serious cancer died, and so they had to all end up at a family awful funeral, very tragic. And I said, so when I met me, was a child had just passed away and they've got a funeral in two weeks because of the way it all happened. They have to do a whole lot of coroner stuff. And I said, come on then, let's just get digging, dive right into this so you can go to that funeral and that little child will be honoured. The family will be cohesively bonded all together and then we'll deal with the fallout of what's happened after that. Let's just stabilise you, put that aside and then go there. And that's so bonding, they realise they still do really care a lot about each other. And they're able to go there and see the difference when they change, hate the word, but anyway, that is a change. That's a massive shift of or modifying, isn't it? Massive to be able to go to a funeral and put the other hat on. Yeah. I say, so how would you feel after it if you don't put that hat on and you don't talk to your sister or your brother-in-law there? So that's what I do. I bring real life pain and examples into it so that people want to shift. They want to. So when couples are really at each other's throat, for example, and there's, there's kind of, you must see it in, in mm. several different ways. Either they're constantly at each other or they just don't care and don't want anything to do with each other again. So there's got to be different. Are there yes. different causes and supports that you give the different for the different ways of being that the couples have great question there are i've identified seven couple types oh. all right the main there's three main couple types who are likely to get into crisis and four where the bottom ones are coercive control abusive ones we're not dealing with them because that if it's a male partner would not come along anyway so drop that off so it's really six that we would deal with the lower end three are not volatile there's not anything happening that's of major crisis, nothing unless one has an affair or one is cheating, okay? So unless that happens, they bundle along, get more disconnected and just drift away from each other, may divorce, may not, whatever, but wouldn't usually come to couples therapy. The top three that will come to something is affairs or cheating, infertility of some kind, high volatility and then control, a controlling couple where one is exerting control over the other or it's bilateral both ways. So they're the three and I handle them very differently. So that's the seven couple types. So the detached, disconnected ones down the, the three in the levels in the bottom only would be coming into particularly my world of really solid shift if a betrayal happens because they haven't got any other reason to kick them into it. Yeah, and how many yeah. couples are Does in that fall into that? Yeah, and so how many couples fall into that meh category? There's nothing really yeah. wrong, it's just Too not many. great. Yeah. We can't get a valid figure on it because where would you get it from? The only way they get figures in research like this is walk around shopping centres with iPads and ask questions of random people, really. So you, you get good a lot of good stats out of that too but you're not going to get that statistic unless you're at the family law court and doing some sort of surveys there and there's been a lot of that where people have drifted and they're divorcing because they've been indifferent disconnected whatever and they just haven't got anything left in common so we can't really say how many couples but in my practice 
of all my couples where somebody strays is vulnerable to straying because there's not enough connection and not enough, it will be 50% of mine. Wow. Yeah. Half of them are in that disconnected, disinterested, friends with no passion, that group. Half would be over half. I think my secretary is going to do some stats on it for me again because I haven't caught that up for a while. I did it two years ago because we did get a much more volatility and a lot of stuff during lockdowns that shifted the statistical lever needle. So she's going to have a look at it and I'll know better, but I don't think it's going to change much. It'll be at least around 50% of them. Wow, that's amazing. Because if we have high-conflict couples tend not to have affairs, tend not to be attracted to anyone else. They're too caught up and controlling couples the same because they're too caught up in trying to impose their way and be right. And, and get it right and uh, the disapproval and the defiance and the argumentative and the accusatory. See, they get too much energy there. They're less likely to find a space and they're less likely to tell anyone else about it at work or somewhere. That's my. That's what I say. I may not be the general rule, but I think from the numbers I've seen over all my years, it would have to be a solid number, I think. So here's a question for you, because where I've gone with that, if you're unhappy in a relationship and it's a volatile relationship, you're getting enough reaction from your spouse to keep you happy. But if yeah. it's a mere relationship, are you then going off to have an affair to get a reaction from your partner? <laughs> yeah, there's partly that, yes. Now, it's not that in the highly volatile ones, often that come, they're passionate people, so they are more able then to get out of that volatility, they don't like it, they don't like the feeling that leaves them with or whatever, but they can still have some sort of physical passionate connection because they're passionate. So they're more likely, but then it flares again. Over time, though, it wears thin. It wears thin and that wears away. So it depends on how long it's been going on for. So pretty typically couples wait too long. I think there's a figure around the internet. I don't know how valid it is, seven years or something. In my book, it's usually nine or ten years in the volatile world, and some of them have tried traditional therapy. But where they're volatile, there's no way in a, I don't think, in a week-to-week, fortnight-to-fortnight, plot-along-to-a-session scenario that you're going to see much of it enough to address it and shift it. That's why I do a weekly individual session each and a joint session every week. Wow. And I can see the benefit of that as well, because then you're talking to each individual as they're going through all the different stages. It's not just sitting on the lounge when one's feeling particularly irritated by the other one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the other thing is I do also, another unique thing is I have what I call nowadays SOS calls. I used to call them ER, emergency room calls, because loads of my clients are in the United States and they like ER or ED. But anyway, SOS calls. So people in their package program have five business days a week, whatever time zone they're in, they can text me to do a 15, 20-minute crisis call and I talk them through. Yeah, and that's added in. And they hardly use them. They use them a lot in the first two to three weeks and they're right because we've got them well aligned. We're really moving in the right direction and occasionally one comes through. So, yes, we need that regular frequent interaction with whatever therapist, that's why I call myself a coach, because therapy has that whole connotation of long-term where I'm coaching in the 90-day space to shift because people can and will shift 
if their goal is uh, high enough and, and clear enough and the directions are. It's got a 14-year-old grandson who's a really good basketballer. He says, it's like you, my coach stands there now and tells me, you know what, put your shoulder that way that bit, turn your foot that way, do that, and, and know you're going to do that as you're close enough to the basket. And then make sure the other arm's where it's got to be to get that in. So he says, that's what you do. And I was a 14-year-old kid, boy, because we have a few talks in the family about it. It comes up quite a bit about what I do because it's unusual. <laughs> it's interesting. Is, is, is this because I'm thinking as you get into habits in relationships, or even over a short period of time, you tend to not mm. think about what you're doing. It's a reaction rather than a response. And is it that you're mm. then doing, from what you're saying, you're creating a new, a different reaction to what you normally do? You respond. Is, I'm, I'm grasping at something here. <laughs> I think what you might be grasping at is that I make a distinction between reacting and responding. And so I show people what's going on when they react and then I show them what to do to respond instead and how much better that outcome is and how they can learn it very quickly. I do that. And I do it all within a little graphic I've got called chain reaction. So they can see there's a negative chain reaction and that's why and that has repercussions. Then we have a positive chain reaction. And that has togetherness, close outcomes. Yeah, so that's what I do. So I'm showing examples all the time because one of the things I say about reacting is my, one of my lines is reacting will hurt you. doesn't matter where we are. If we react at the policeman that pulls us over, then we get a fine. We might not have if we've been responding and nice. Who knows? But we react. If we arc up and in a reactive way, even if it's an arc up but a walk away, shoulder shrugger, contemptual walk, whatever we do, if we react, it will come back to bite us and hurt us somehow. But we're not and even it hurts aware. the relationship, so then indirectly. Yeah, because we're not no. even aware that we are reacting. It's just that's what we do in that situation. Mm -hmm. And it's, is it really difficult to get people to see how they react? No, because I'm, I've got a lens on it, of course. And because I do the individual sessions, I talk about that with them in their individual sessions. And then when we do the joint, they're much more pleasant and civil and cooperative with each other to go, yeah, I am doing that to you. Because if they care enough, they wouldn't be coming in my program if they didn't have enough depth of caring or they wanted to decide if they had enough depth of caring. So then they go, oh, wow, yeah, that's right. Oh, why did I say that? Because I always do and that makes you feel shut down. Why do I want to shut you down? I don't know. It's habit, yeah. So then I say, what about if you said this instead? And then we've got loads and loads of dialogue examples that I give them. <laughs> it's great because I'm mm. beginning to see the power of doing the individual sessions as well as the joint sessions because otherwise you're mm. not going to be able to get to this, are you? Because if you start trying to explain to somebody that they're reacting rather than responding to something their partner's doing when they're sitting right next to them, it's probably not going to go well. No, we get lots of outcomes. Occasionally, when we're good at couple therapy, you can manage it relatively well, but you don't get as good an outcome. And when I'm doing the individual sessions, I can assess that person's ability to take on board what I'm saying and word it so they can and they can apply it. I can assess that person's personality type. I can also assess their endurance or perseverance threshold 
to see what other piece moving pieces we can bring in to make sure we solidify it so i get a lot more out of the person by knowing that person you can't get any you cannot get that in joint sessions with couples you just can't and i did years of it so i know it's not like i didn't ever try it okay here's a loaded question that you actually don't need to answer why because as you're talking i'm going i can see why you need to have individual sessions so why does the normal most of the normal marriage guidance or relationship counseling sessions why are they all joint why is that i think it's an evolution over time from the earliest days of the forefathers of couples couples therapy started it really started in churches with marriage guidance like 1960s 1970s and then we came into the 80s and we more came into two main key therapists who were Susan Johnson, which is emotional focus therapy. And then there was the Gottmans, John Gottman, who came up with a range of ways teachers. And all of their structure was around the couple interacting. They didn't see, and so I don't know that they didn't see it, but we became regulated by bodies where people could make complaints okay so everybody it all became defensive protective around the potential of a complaint and to therefore the guidelines came in here in australia and in the united states as far as i understand in in several european countries we had to just each partner had to hear what the other one had to say that was what it was about there was no not to be any one-on-one or secretive stuff in case secrets were told. I don't keep secrets anyway. And I made sure I've never had a situation yet in all of this where I've had somebody come and say, oh, you talked about something with him or her and you didn't tell me about it because I always say, hey, we need to raise that. It's just that we, I take the fuel and the fire and the flames out of it is what I do and reposition it so we can bring it up in an atmosphere of really camaraderie and cooperation. I'm building cooperation all the time. And you just can't build it, as you said, with a couple there that are hearing it, getting activated by what the other one said, the judgment statements they make, the criticisms. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, how did it evolve? I think it came about because of the regulatory bodies trying to make everything fit into a model. Something you Mm. said there, it was about judgment and I think for me that's what I'm hearing in what you do is that when an individual talks to you and they tell you all this stuff you can listen without judgment and they can be heard without judgment and I know from personal experience that just being able to share myself with no judgment takes all of the yes negative power out of it so that but if you you could not do that without judgment if you're (laughs) fessing up to something when your partner's sitting there because they're going to be a judge right absolutely i use an example a crazy one glass on sink okay how many times i just abbreviated the three words but how much trouble that causes with couples where one insists on putting the glass on the sink So I use that as a glass on sink is like an umbrella title for the problems in a couple therapy session which haven't been set up well with the individual sessions. So because the glass on sink will be brought up 
and it's not indicative of their relationship and how, how you can heal it all. It's indicative of I'm right and you're wrong and I want a clean sink. My standards, it's actually a put down, my standards are higher than yours or you don't have standards. See, so all that accusatory stuff goes on. So your standards, you don't have any. Towel on floor, bathroom floor, all these things that are all domestic logistics, that's what gets fired around and good, strong, sound couple therapists can do a good job of navigating it. Myself personally, I think to get the biggest adapting and the lining out of it, we need to do the individual part of it each time because there's so many cogs moving and move the judgment, as you just said, eliminate. We need to absolutely eliminate judgment, criticism and shame. Has to go. Yeah, there are two other loaded things, criticism and shame, because those are the other two, like criticism in particular. What's the shame about? Talk to me about that. If somebody's, for instance, I had a couple last year for where he'd had and she could understand, she'd been suffering severe anxiety since the beginning of the pandemic and she just could not put it apart. So all of the dialogue between them was all about how weak she was to succumb to this anxiety. It was weak. It was she's better than that. So it was all put downs, lots of you're not good enough. You wouldn't suffer this anxiety if you were, all this stuff. So for her that was shameful. Now, there's always shame around people who have relationships with other people who cheat or betray. There's always shame there if they're coming for help. There's not shame if they don't want help. Then they're not, they're going, oh, stuff it. No, I don't feel ashamed. But if they're ashamed, yeah. So shame, of course, there with infidelity, but in many other areas. So this lass felt like this little big, this big, because she was swamped and swallowed with anxiety and was taking medication for it. And therefore that turn made her not at all physically intimately interested and also her tolerance was she was irritable so she was very intolerant to him if he was a little bit late with something or if he didn't set the table didn't put his knife on the plate the right way at the end she became incredibly picky it comes with some people do with anxiety and she had it so that was that's that type of shame and then there's a lot of other shame the house isn't tidy enough we feel ashamed I keep always late shame it doesn't matter if it's one another example was you only post about yourself on your instagram account and all your wonderful achievements you don't put anything up about the family shame that's shame both sides so shame is a funny thing it is quietly silently rumbling away there until i and my big thing is to bring it up yeah it's funny as you're talking i'm going oh my gosh yeah there's so many possibilities for shame i'm not good enough All I do is look after the kids. I haven't got a job. I'm not earning money. All of those things. I hadn't considered it from that perspective at all. But it is a shame, isn't it? Yeah. And where you've got uh, a partner that's not earning, and it's not always a woman, sometimes it's the man that's not earning, you've got the shame can come through from I'm not trying hard enough. Why didn't I? I put out 60 applications for jobs and I didn't get any. What's I didn't get any of them. Shame comes in multiple layers. But the empathy from the other partner, from their partner, their spouse, isn't there. It can be in the beginning, but it wears thin over a long time. Yeah. It's so so when I'm in my individual sessions, the empathy comes through and we resolve that as best we can. 
Mm. It's I love what you do because it's all about hearing the individuals because unless the individual's been heard fully, there's no way forward because their their iOS system no. isn't operating, basically. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yes, so that's how I do it, Karen. That is fantastic. Is that we're going to wrap up in a few minutes? Is there anything else you want to share before we go? Look, people ask me, why is it possible? Isn't once a cheater always a cheater? Because I'm mainly in that area. Why is that not? And I say, there are some serial offenders, and I don't see them. Or if I do, they come onto an introductory call. I can pick it in a five seconds, less than ten minutes, anyway. And I don't work with them and I feel bad for the, but then we're not going to go anywhere with it. Yeah. So there are those out there, the serial offenders. All right. And so if there's a guidance around what the spouse should do, and it's usually a woman, then she either adapts and tolerates it or the marriage is over. But, but in the world I work in, the, the cheating is a once off, doesn't happen again. There's a cry for help type of cheating is that's what I said right earlier on. It's that cry for help, cry for mattering, cry to have my humanity valued, validated, valued, not put down, honoured. Now, honouring and cherishing I talk a lot about. We can't stay in an, in a cherishing state the whole of 24-7, that no, but we can have a deep-seated honouring for somebody else and stay in goodwill and positivity cooperation with them. So that's really what I'm guiding the whole way through. And tell me, tell people how they can get in touch with you. Where can they? I mean, everything will be on the web page that goes with the podcast, but how can people get in touch with you yes. directly? Yeah, directly is easier. It's on the web, on my website, the homepage, there's a button there to book a call with me, which is an introductory call, okay? So it's a 45-minute introductory call and there's times available week in, week out. Unless I'm fully booked for a while, then I don't have the button up there. But if the button's there, there are some times available. Book that call. It can be just one partner or it can be both together. Sometimes I do an individual one each and then do a joint. Sometimes I do the joint first, then an individual one afterwards because there's a lot to get through in that. And I can, that's one way. It's the easiest way. You can put my email up. I always put my Gmail up. I have my website one. And on the website, there's also, of course, the contact form and you can come through that. There's plenty of ways. But I put my Gmail on there because this is probably going to be to Australian viewers, I'm imagining. But because I work so much overseas, sometimes the website contact form doesn't work. It's crazy. So I put my Gmail address on there as well. That works anywhere in the world. Okay, great. It's about 50% Australian and 50% overseas is my listening base. So, yeah. Oh, there you go. There you go. So, yeah, so sometimes it, something might bounce for them. Or if they're not sure, just shoot me an email on the Gmail account because we know that always goes through. Okay, lovely. Just before yeah. you go, I'm going to ask okay. you this. What happens if you're, you find that your partner was unfaithful to you and you continue, you mend it for various reasons. You don't go for counselling, but for various reasons, you 
just decide to stay together and you stumble along for years. But then as the years go on, you find that your partner's treating you with less and less respect and you just wish that you got out when you could have done a few years before. Is that salvageable or how do you work on that kind of scenario? The same way, it's fully, it is fully salvageable because if if people know how to salvage it, because sometimes the partner that's showing the disrespect doesn't even know they are. What they're more doing is showing disapproval and that's because the person that got really hurt can't show approval to them. We're bumbling along, but we've stopped showing approval. Therefore, one or other or both feel this strong vibe of disapproval and then they don't know what to do about it. It feels like disrespect. People talk about disrespect all the time. But disapproval is really what the underlying point is. And so they can't do it. They can't fix that themselves. So they just bumble along and it feels like disrespect so we get more distant. As soon as we fix that, that disapproval piece, and get into the idea of who am I here, what does likeable, being likeable and being lovable mean, not loving, not showing love, but being somebody that somebody can love, that's what I do. I do a whole likeable, lovable piece. It's a wake-up call and it stops. Thank you so much, Dee. This has been absolutely brilliant. (laughs) Good. You're very welcome, Karen. Thank you very much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and don't forget to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you're leaving with some thought-provoking information that can make a difference in your life. See you next time.